We're going to be in Luke 15, and we'll complete uh, the rest of the chapter, verses 11 through 32, the famed parable of the prodigal son. Now, as we turn our attention to this text, I want you to think with me for a moment. This is surely familiar to you. The parable of the prodigal son is perhaps Jesus' most famous parable. In fact, Charles Dickens, the famed writer, as you're surely familiar, he once remarked that this is the greatest short story ever written. Indeed, it is in my judgment as well, for what we will see as we read this text is we will see some profoundly simple words from our Lord. Simple any child can understand them, so profound the greatest theologians have spent 2,000 years plumbing their depths. So if you found it, I invite you to stand with me as we read together God's Word, Luke 15. We'll begin in verse 11. Now, for the sake of time, I'll read just part of it. I'm going to read down through verse 24, and we'll pick back up and read verses 25 through 32 as we progress through the text. Luke 15, beginning in verse 11. Hear now the words of our Lord Jesus. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And so he divided his property between his boys. Now, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there that younger son squandered his property, and he did so in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went, and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who'd sent him into the fields to feed pigs." And he hits rock bottom in verse 16, for it says, He was so hungry, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and nobody gave him anything. So in verse 17, as you might suspect, he comes to himself. It says, When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But here I am perishing with hunger. Here's what I'll do. I'll rise and I'll go to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as one of your hired servants. And so off he goes. He arises and comes to his father. But notice the next word. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He felt compassion. He ran and he embraced him. Indeed, he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father stopped him and said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Let's put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Come on, let's bring the fattened calf. Let's kill it. Let's eat. Let's celebrate for my son was dead. He's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. And so they began to celebrate. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, we do come before you once again and ask for your mercy on Clinton Connie Presley. Lord, we pray that you would heal her body, bring her back the strength she needs, and continue, O oh God, to protect our pastor. We long for them to return soon. But now, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, I ask that you would grant the grace 
for all hard hearts in this room to be softened, all deaf ears in this room to hear, all blind eyes to see. Oh, I pray, oh God, that you would do what I cannot, and that's take this word and seal it to the hearts of your people. Do this, I pray. Embrace us, I pray, with your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, I've seen this parable come to life before my very eyes. Growing up in Oklahoma City, my home, I knew two brothers, one older, one younger, shared the same bedroom, same parents, similar in so many ways, and yet so different. The older brother, he was what you might call the classic golden child. He tended to obey. He tended to do the right thing. All the teachers at school liked him. All the Sunday school teachers liked him. He never really got in fights, made friends pretty easily. You know, he'd back talk a time or two to his parents, but what child doesn't? He was really pretty much what you'd call a good kid, compliant, obedient. But he had a younger brother, two years younger. And this younger brother basically was the foil, the opposite of the older brother. If the older brother went right, this younger brother went left. If the older brother did right, the younger brother would complement it with the wrong. He was what you might call the classic troublemaker, just rebellious, always getting into things, just always, 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 it seemed, disobeying. So different, polar opposites. And yet, these two brothers had one profound commonality. This obedient and disobedient brother whom I knew in Oklahoma, were both lost. 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 I know this to be true because the brothers of which I speak were me and my younger brother. I have a younger brother, Kelly. We shared a bedroom till I was 16 years of age. Same mom and dad, same church, same school. My brother rebelled throughout his childhood and teenage years, to the point where he fell headfirst into the bondage of addiction. Pretty much any addiction you can imagine. The year I was called to pastoral ministry, the year I became a pastor as a teenager, he was in jail for some of his decisions. Our lives took completely different trajectories. And here's the trick, my friends. Both of us were lost both of us. But most people didn't think that. All of our families and friends thought I was a believer. And they all thought, rightly so, that my brother Kelly was not. You see, they, like so many, hear this, they, like so many, mistook mere morality for Christianity. Oh, how common that is. It's easy to look at the older brother types like me and see goodness must mean godliness. Morality must mean Christianity. He's pretty good. He goes to church. He's pretty faithful. He knows the Bible. Therefore, ipso facto, he must be a Christian. And yet my brother, whose life was so wayward, well, manifestly obvious, not walking with the Lord. And my friends, they were so wrong. 
So many were so wrong, for my heart was wayward. I was near the Father and yet in the far country. I was far from the heart of God. And Jesus knew that this common misconception would go throughout the ages. He knew that many throughout the generations would be inclined to mistake mere morality for Christianity, would be inclined to look at the older brother and say, saved. Just a little proud. Younger brother, clearly not needs to get saved. And what he does is he comes with this parable and confronts the Pharisees and the scribes. Remember, that's who these are written to. Verses 1 and 2 of this chapter we looked at last week, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and to the scribes. And they are all out of whack with him. They're all mad because Jesus is ministering to the tax collectors and sinners. They don't like that. They say, those are the lost people. You need to be we with us who are found. Come with us. And Jesus is sharing with them three parables. The parable of the lost sheep, we looked at last week. The parable of the lost coin, we looked at last week. And now third and finally, the parable of the prodigal son. And in this simple yet profound parable, this little story, Jesus upends that common misconception. He turns it around. He flips the script. He shocks all the hearers of that day, and he ought to shock you and I this Lord's day with this simple, profound truth. Hickory Grove, hear this. There is more than one way to be lost. Jesus is saying, that lost coin and lost sheep that you resonated with, you like the message that I came to save sinners, but what I'm reminding you, Pharisees and scribe, is that there is more than one way to be lost. In this text, I want you to see that he shows two different ways we can be lost. The first way is obvious. I won't spend a lot of time on it, but I will address it. The first way you can be lost is typified by the younger brother. Let's just put it like this. My friends, you can be lost by disobeying God. Look, if you will, at verse 11. In verse 11, you see this younger brother. Clearly, this was the wayward child. This was the boy who was doing everything wrong. And I just want you to notice with me, beginning in verse 11 and following, notice if you can see this cycle of sin in your life. It says in verse 11 that he came and he said to his daddy, I want everything you got. Give me your property, he says in verse 12. It's in essence him saying, you're dead to me. I don't want to wait till you die to get my inheritance. I want you to go now. I want it now. So he is rejecting his father completely in verse 12. And then it says he takes it and off he goes. In verse 13, it says he squanders it in reckless living. That's where, by the way, we get the word prodigal. Prodigal is from the Latin, which means reckless. It means uh, wasteful. It means throwing it all away. And that is what the younger brother did. He told his dad, you're good as dead to me. I'm taking what's yours and I'm off. And then he throws it all away. And you've done this, haven't you? You have looked at God in the face and you have squandered his grace and you've gone and reveled in sin. You have been in the pigsty, so to speak, which is where the younger brother goes next. He falls into the sty of pigs and he hits rock bottom in verse 16. So many of us find that in sin, by the way. Have you ever hit rock bottom? Have you ever fallen flat on your face like the younger brother did? You fall down, you recognize that you're in a jam, that sin isn't what you thought. And my friends, is that not true? Sin is a lie. It's a falsehood. It's a sham. It's a scam. It's fraudulent. Sin 
is a lie. It deceives you. It's as old as the Garden of Eden when Satan tempted the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and he said, if you do this, you will be wise. You'll be like God, knowing good from evil. He deceived them. They bought the lie, and everything fell apart. Sin, my friends, will deceive you. Sin, moreover, doesn't just deceive. I want you to notice also that sin ends up doing something pretty terrible to us. It disappoints every single time. That's why the writer in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 and verse 25, he says, sin has fleeting pleasures. Have you ever known that to be true for you? You dabble in sin because you know it'll make you feel good, and it's like a hit. You feel good in the moment, but it, wean, it wears off real quickly. The fleeting pleasures of sin. It will never give you what you want. It always disappoints. It always deceives, and unfortunately, my friends, I must tell you, sin will always deliver that which it really is. Mark in your margins, Galatians 6 and verse 7 where the Apostle Paul reminds us, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man will reap what he sows. Let's just take this as a reminder from God himself that sin is a lie. Don't buy it. There are younger brothers in this room, so to speak. You who are in the far country. You've stumbled in here this day. Maybe by accident, maybe by coercion by your parents. You're joining us online because you've just been looking for something to do on Sunday morning. If you are in the far country, you know that you are living in sin and you're still believing that its promises will be fulfilled. You still think you're not deceived. You still think it is a preferable way. My plea to you this day is don't by the lie. Come home from the far country. Come home. There is a good loving father who will hold you in his everlasting arms, embrace you, kiss you as it were. He will get, grant you that which you long for. Come home. But I suspect in this room there are probably more of us who would resonate more so with the older brother. We're obedient. We're pretty good folk. We're the type of people who have been near the father. I mean, you're at church. You're near him. You're, you've stayed on the farm. You are close to the Father. And my plea to you is to think, to know, to remember. You might be farther from him than you think. You're, you're near him, but your heart may be very far from him. I want you to remember, don't be ignorant of Satan's designs. Paul reminds us of that in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11. Don't be ignorant of his designs. He's crafty. And it is you older brother types like me, you most obedient, faithful, committed types that will be most easily deceived by the wiles of the devil. And so I want you to see, we have noticed that clearly you can be lost by disobeying God. But there is more than one way to be lost. I want you to see secondly and more profoundly, number two, you can also be lost by obeying God. By obeying him. Notice, if you will, in verse 25, the older brother. We hadn't read this yet. In verse 25, it says, Now the older son was in the field. He wasn't in the far country. He was at home on the farm. That means he was a hard worker. He was committed. You see, this older brother, he was what you might call a faithful member of this church. 
committed, sacrificially giving, served a lot, was here every time the lights were on. This was an obedient, committed older son. He was in the field. But you're going to notice, beginning in verse 28, he's not all that meets the eye. His true colors come out in verse 28. For notice, let me continue in verse 25. It says, and as he came, he drew near to the house, he heard something. He heard music and he heard dancing, so he called one of the servants and he asked what all this was. What's going on here? I've got a party going on and I'm not at it. Verse 27, it says, he said to his, the brother, your brother's come, your father's killed the fattened calf, he's received him back safe and sound. That should have been great news. The older brother should have been like, hot dog, my brother is home, praise be to God, he who was lost is now found. But notice what verse 28 says. His response is one of anger. Why? Why? Because the older brother, in truth, was no different than the younger brother. The older brother wanted his dad's stuff the same way the younger brother did. They just had a different method. I want you to see that the older brother, he was obeying God conditionally. Mark that down. There's a few ways in this text, a few subtle ways in this text, we see that you can be lost by obeying God. First, you can be lost by obeying God conditionally. Like the older brother. You're serving God because of what you hope to get from him. This younger brother was angry because he wanted the party. He wanted the inheritance. He wanted the gifts, not the giver. And the minute that man who didn't deserve it got it, the minute grace came into the equation, he resented it. He hated it. He didn't want his brother to get grace because he thought he had earned it. You see, the older brother was basically no different from the younger brother. The older brother was basically doing the same things. He was obeying as a means to an end, like a quid pro quo. He was obeying God, hoping to get something back from God. And Jesus' warnings against this sort of obedience, this conditional obedience, are replete throughout the Bible. Hear this, my friends. Conditional obedience is rebellion. If you obey God conditionally, in God's eyes, you are doing nothing short of rebelling against him. This is why God, Yahweh, says to the people of Israel in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 22, I want you to obey me, he says. I don't want all of your sacrifices. It's better to obey me than to sacrifice, he says. Because he's saying, I don't want all of your external conformity if your heart's not for me. This is why Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 15, you worship me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Hickory Grove, your motivations, my motivations manifestly matter. Let's just ask ourselves a few probing questions. Why, why are you here? What motivated you to come to church today? Why do you worship? Why do you serve? Why do you give? Why do you pray? Why do you go on mission trips? Why do you, why do, you do anything that you do for the Lord? Why have you stayed near the Father? Why are you on the farm right now? The implicit warning of this text, as we see this older brother, is that if you are here 
because you're hoping to get something in return from God. If you love the gift more than the giver, the warning is you are no different from the younger brother. You are lost. So mark this down, church. Number one, you can be lost by obeying God conditionally. Secondly, I want you to notice through his next response, you can be lost in addition, not just by obeying God conditionally. You can be lost by obeying God reluctantly. For notice, if you will, in the verse 29, it says, after he was angry and refused to go in, his father came out and entreated him. And in verse 29, it says, but the older brother answered, look, dad, all these years I've served you. Now that word served is lost on us in the English translation. But if you were to read it in the original Greek, the word is duleo, which means enslavement. In other words, let's put it in layman's terms. The older brother is saying, Dad, all these years I've slaved away for you. All these years I've been in bondage, obeying you, doing the right thing. I deserve this. I earned it. I've worked hard for you, Dad. God, dear church, hates reluctant obedience. He hates duty-bound religion. If you are here out of a mere sense of duty, reluctant obligation, I want you to see this. God is not honored, and you don't really believe that either. None of us love duty-bound obedience. Let's just use an analogy. I've used this several times before. I, I cannot remember if I've used this analogy with this congregation. If I have, it bears repeating. It's, it's a pretty good one. It's always in, impacted me. It, it's not original to me. It comes from a pastor named John Piper, but I'm going to take the analogy and apply it like it's mine. So just bear with me. John Piper used this illustration. I'll use it like it's mine. Imagine tomorrow I come home from work and I go and knock on the front door of my house. And Lauren answers the door, and my wife is sitting down here on the front row. That'd be kind of a weird thing. I don't normally come and knock on the front door. I knock on the front door. She opens it. She says, hey, and I pull out from behind my back a bunch of roses, which would be an unusual thing, I confess. <laughs> I pull out all these roses. Lauren looks at these roses, and she's shocked and surprised, and she goes, oh, Kyler, that's so sweet of you. Why'd you do that? Now, what if I responded to her with roses in my hand and with a stoic look I said, well, I've been told that it is my duty and obligation as your husband, as demonstrated by this ring on my finger, I'm contractually bound, obligated to reluctantly give you these roses. Be honored. <laughs> Enough said. Now imagine if I tweaked that just a bit. And I came home, knocked on the door. Lauren answers the door. She looks at me. Kyler, what are you doing here? I pull out the roses, and she goes, oh, wow, why'd you do that? And I say, because I love you, sweetie, and nothing makes me happier than to make you happy or something cheesy like that. <laughs> Ladies in the room, would you be honored if your husband said that? Of course, because we all know that a duty-bound obedience is gutless. It's empty. It's fraudulent. I want you to see, my friends, that if Christianity is a killjoy to you, if your faith is but fetters on your wrists, beware. The birthmark of cultural Christianity 
is reluctant obedience. It's duty-bound church attendance. And churches across this country are filled with people that are here because they have to be, who are enslaved and are going to stand before his throne one day and say, all these years, Father, I've served you. And when he looks at you as he does in Matthew 7 and says, I never knew you, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, you'll be outraged and say, but I've done this. Why are you not letting me in? I obeyed you all my life and I want you to hear, you can be lost by disobeying God and by obeying God if you do so conditionally and reluctantly. But there is a third layer to this. A third way we can be found as those lost while obeying God. You can be lost while obeying God conditionally, reluctantly, and lastly, let me draw your attention to the latter half of verse 29 and 30. You can be lost by obeying God competitively, for lack of a better word. Maybe you could say comparatively. Look with, you, look with me, if you will, at verse 29. He says, I never disobeyed you. I never get, and you never gave me anything. I didn't get the goat. I didn't get to celebrate with my friends. In other words, he's saying, I've done everything right. I've been good. I've earned this. I deserve the party, not that scoundrel. In fact, verse 30, he says with disdain and contempt in his voice, this son of yours, he's devoured it all up. He has filled the land. He's eaten it all the property up with prostitutes. And why'd you give him the fattened calf? In other words, he's basically doing what the Pharisees in verse 1 of this chapter did. Do you remember what the Pharisees said in verse 1? Look with me, if you will, at verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, but the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. And in verse 2 it says, This man receives sinners, this son of yours, this lowly person. In other words... They are proving, the older brother is proving that he was obeying simply out of a competitive spirit. He was measuring himself up to the younger brother. And since he found himself in a better, more favorable position to his younger brother, he thought he had earned it. How many of you in this room find yourself obeying merely out of a competitive, comparative spirit? You find yourself trying to grow in grace just so that you don't look worse than those in your community group. Just so that you're not the object of scorn and gossip in this room. Just so that your spouse will get off your back. Just so that your children won't be embarrassed by you. You're doing it merely out of competitive spirit. If that's you, let's just consider a little test together. This might help us think through whether or not our spirit is in line with the spirit of the older brother. When you look at people, your spouse, your coworker, somebody in this room... When you look at folks, do you see them, follow my analogy here, do you see them as a window into God's grace? Meaning, when you, when you look at them, you see through them the grace of God. You see evidences of grace in their life. You look at your husband, and though he's imperfect, you say, but I'm seeing how God is moving in his life. I see growth in grace, and I'm rejoicing in the fact that he is getting the grace I've gotten. Do you see it as a window? When you are out and about and you see people who are very clearly younger brother types, they are clearly in the far country, do you look at them as windows into God's grace? And you look and you're like, you know what? If only they had the grace I've had. Oh, if only they could see the mercy I've tasted. Oh, I pray they would experience what I've gotten. Is that you? Or do you find yourself, as I have so many times, not seeing people as a window into God's grace, but as one-way glass? You know what one-way glass is? 
That means that person can see through it and see you, but when you're looking at them, all you see is, in essence, a mirror. It's just reflecting you back. So when you look at somebody, you don't see grace in their life, you just see yourself, and you're like, I'm measuring myself up to you. Am I better than you? Have I done more than you? It's kind of like that Snow White tale, mirror, mirror on the wall, who is the fairest of them all? Am I looking better than this person? And so you spend all of your time just measuring yourself up with them. And if that's you, I want you to hear this. Let go of that weight of comparison. It will hold you down. It's misguided. Think about the people that were being competed with in this story. It's the Pharisees and scribes. These people had all of us beat. They were some of the most holy people around. And Jesus is saying, you scribes and Pharisees, you'll never measure up. It's misguided, my friends. Indeed, it is miserable to try to live with obedience based off comparison. For when you do that, you are basically enslaved to everybody else. You will spend your whole life essentially trying to save yourself. So hear it, dear church. There is more than one way to be lost. You can be lost by disobeying God. That's clear by the younger brother. But you can also be lost by obeying God if you do so conditionally, if you do so reluctantly, and if you do so competitively. But praise be to God, this text does not just end there. For in verses 17 and following, and then at the tail end in verses 31 and 32, we see that though there is two ways to be lost, praise be to Jesus, there is but one way to be found. For the father responds to the younger brother and the older brother in the exact same way. I want you to see his similar, indeed identical response. And I want you to see this firstly in verses 22, 24. I want you to notice that to be found, number one, God must come to you. Did you notice God, the father in this tale, he proactively came to the son it says he wasn't in his house stewing about his son. It says he proactively was out looking. It says in verse 20, he saw him while he was a long way off. And that's what he did for you. He saw you when you were in the far country. He saw you in your darkest moment, deep in your sin, and he saw you at that moment. And as the story says, it was you in the far country. He saw you and he felt compassion for you. That means he loved you even while we were dead in our sins. He loved us and sent Jesus to die for us, Romans 5.8 says. He saw you in your sin. He felt compassion for you in your sin. And it says he ran, meaning he proactively came to you. God's gospel is not do good and be saved. His gospel is I'm coming to you in Christ to come and get you. I have come to save you. God must come to you, and praise be to Jesus, he has in Jesus. He has run to us through the cross where he embraced us with his grace. Did you notice when the son comes to the father and the father embraces him and kisses him, the next thing that comes out of his mouth in verse 21 is, Dad, I confess all these things I did to you. Now, you might expect the father to respond, you're right, son, and you're gonna have to earn this back. But what does verse 22 say? But the father said, we're going to throw a party. 
The father said, I'm going to put a ring on your finger, a robe on your back, sandals on your feet. In other words, the father is saying, I am making you a son again. I am fully reconciling you. I am restoring you by my grace. I am not counting your sin against you. I have come through Jesus to save you, to redeem you. I am going to reconcile you completely to me. I am going to glorify you one day, throw you a gigantic party, which is what the Bible says God will do with all the angelic hosts for we lost sinners, there will come a great marriage supper of the Lamb where we will all enjoy an unmeasurable banquet, glorying in the fact that we have been saved by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus has come to save us. The Father has run to us. He has felt compassion to us, for us. He has embraced us. He has kissed us. He has clothed us with his righteousness. He has thrown us a great party. Praise Jesus for you younger brothers in this room. And all of us have younger brothers in our family, so to speak. Your child that is in the far country this moment, your spouse in the far country, you who are in the far country, I want you to hear that there is grace that is greater than all your sin. There is a father who is seeing you. He is calling you. He is beckoning you to come home, and he will receive you in his everlasting arms. And I praise the Lord that my brother, the younger brother, who was in the far country nine years ago, came out of it. He came home. The year I came to Hickory Grove was the year Kelly came home to Christ. He saw his sin. He saw his need. He has turned his life around. Five years ago, Lauren and I flew out to Arkansas so I could officiate his wedding to a precious, godly Christian woman. Just yesterday, I talked to him on the phone for 30 minutes, first off asking him permission to share this anecdote, and to congratulate and celebrate with him that he's about to graduate with his degree in petroleum engineering, and you know, I'm banking that one day he'll make enough money to help me retire. Kelly is a living testimony to 2 Thessalonians 5.17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. There is hope for younger brothers in this room like you. But what about the older brother? How did he respond? You see, the younger brother responded rightly. He responded to God's proactive grace. God came to him, and the younger brother turned to God. He saw his sin, he saw his name, and he came to God in repentance and faith. But what did the older brother do? Verse 28 says that the father came out and entreated him. Now what does verse 33 say? Everybody look down at your Bibles, and what does it say? It's not there. Why? Why did God leave that out? It's like an unfinished painting, an unfinished film. It's like an unresolved chord in a song. It's just something's not right. It's hanging. You want more. Why do we not see the older brother's response in verse 33? I think that's a point because I think Jesus in his infinite wisdom through the use of these parables is calling all older brothers like you and me to reckon with the fact that the call of the gospel is for us to fill in verse 33, so to speak. To respond to the grace of God to we who are used to obeying him. And I'm happy, overjoyed to testify to you, church, that some 20 years ago, I filled in verse 33. 
For God called me out of my self-righteousness. 20 years ago, he saved me out of darkness, brought me into wonderful light, helped me to see that my obedience was rebellion in his eyes. For I was obeying conditionally, reluctantly, competitively, and he opened my eyes, and I have been changed ever since. Since that day, I have not gotten over the fact that I who was once dead am now alive. I who was once lost am now found. I who was once blind can now see. God save me. But not every older brother has responded as God by his grace allowed me to respond. You know, how did the original older brother respond? Who is the original older brother in this text? the Pharisees and the scribes. John MacArthur imagines pretty powerfully how the scribes and Pharisees would have filled in verse 33. Do you know how this parable would have ended in truth? After the father entreats the older son, verse 33 would have gone something like this. And the older son was enraged and he beat his father to death with sticks before everybody. Graphic, stunning, but true. For in a short time, these scribes and Pharisees, these older brothers would turn on the Father, would kill him, would crucify our Lord, would hang him on a cross, but in an ironic twist that only God can manufacture, I want you to see that their grievous sin became our great salvation. Their crime wrought our conversion. Their rejection of Jesus brought our reconciliation to Jesus. They did that which God in his infinite wisdom knew must transpire for the salvation and reconciliation and conversion of older brothers and younger brothers alike. You see, thanks to Jesus, public and private sinners can be saved. Thanks to Jesus, we older brothers and younger brothers alike can be saved. You proud in this room and you prodigals in this room can be saved. And so take heart, Hickory Grove. The good news of the Christian faith as portrayed in Luke 15 is that Jesus loves saving sinners like you and like me. Bear in mind, be warned, never forget, lest you find that to be good news for they and not you, that there is more than one way to be lost. But thank God that thanks to Jesus, there is but one way to be found. Would you join me as we pray? With your heads bowed as we go to the Lord in a time of commitment, the call of Christ to you, you older brothers in this room, who have come here for years, but have never been confronted with the fact that your very obedience may indeed be rebellion against God, the call of Christ to you this day is to turn from that sin, to come as the younger brother did, and to receive the grace of the Father who is entreating you, who is pleading with you this day to turn. But if there are any younger brothers gathered here this day, whether in this room or online, the call of Christ to you is to come home. There is a good, gracious Father who will welcome you with his open arms 
he will restore you fully. And so God Almighty, I ask that you by the power of your spirit and thanks to Jesus and his shared spilt blood on our behalf, I pray God that you would open our eyes, that you would open our ears, that you would change our heart and that all in this room might turn from their sins, come to you and receive the grace that is found in Jesus. Oh, we glory in the fact that though there is more than one way to be lost, thanks to you, Lord Jesus, there is but one way to be found. In Jesus' name we plead this. Amen. I invite you to stand to your feet. And as you stand, we're going to sing. We're going to respond. The call to you this day is to come as men are up here at the front to pray with you. Let's sing and let's respond together.